glad you're here this morning. You get uh, extra jewels in your crown or something. I don't know. Daylight savings time and rain. And you guys, you guys are here and on on time. We won't. We're going to make a covenant a commitment right now not to laugh at anybody that walks in in about 35 minutes, prancing in like they're about to start. So, or, uh, no, that's right. Yeah, we lost an hour, so they will be walking in an hour from now. 30 minutes or so. Yeah, that'd be funny. We'll snicker on the inside. If you're a visitor this morning for the first time or the first of a couple times and you haven't grabbed one of these packets, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Uh, Clay Petzold will be manning a table on the other, in the other building this morning and will uh, be distributing these. They have some information about who we are as a church, what we believe. Um, there's also a little treat in there for you that will pay for most of your meal, if not all of it, uh, to give you a chance to sit and talk through what's What's in here, and what did you just experience? So uh, we just wanted to bless you with that. We're not trying to entice you or, I need this. This is, um, it, I don't do anything with it. It's just my crutch. I need to have this right here. <laughs> Ouch, that thing is sharp. <sighs> Funny. All right, we're going to start with prayer this morning. But if you joined us this, this morning as a visitor, we're welcome, or you're welcome. We're glad you're here. Let's pray. God, this morning we want to pray about how we spend these next few minutes, uh, but first I want to pray for another pastor, um, a guy named Jeff Allen, um, who is pastoring in Texarkana, uh, Brian Allen's brother. I want to pray for Jeff and for Providence Baptist Church that's meeting in a barbecue place. Um, God, I, I just want to pray for his, first of all, for his marriage for his worship, that those are intertwined and interconnecting, that um, he is being fueled by worship as he's tending to and caring for and loving his wife as Christ loves the church, uh, that his children are being ministered to first and foremost, and that it's fueled by worship. And Lord, that after that, that this, this new little church um, that is um, what may seem like in the eyes of the world unimpressive and fledgling. Uh, if it's holding on to what we hold on to, a triune God, a, um, a perfect son, virgin born, crucified and risen, reigning and ruling right now, then Lord, we count them a robust, hearty, healthy bride of Christ. And we pray for them this morning. We pray that you would draw other folks to this church, to Providence Baptist, and that Jeff and his uh, family and the other leadership of the church are the leaders in making would be raised up and that your church would be beautified and healthy and built. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for how we spend these next few minutes. Uh, I'm thankful for your word and thankful for even difficult, challenging passages that stretch us, passages that we likely wouldn't visit unless um, we felt uh, led to understand every word of your word. I'm thankful for one of those sermons this morning, thankful that there are some rich and robust truths, even from difficult passages. Uh, so we entrust this time to you. I pray for clarity of speech, clarity of mind. I pray for the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in hearing in these next few minutes, that your people will hear from you in, how, um, in, in these next few minutes. We turn this time over to you. We're thankful in advance, uh, and we trust you and entrust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We have some work to do today. 
And let me encourage you. I realize a lot of people have the Bible on their iPhones and iPads. Somebody mentioned that to me the other day when I said, I want to hear some pages turning. And somebody was holding an iPad and they started going, whoosh, 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 whoosh. So I get that. So turn in whatever device or whatever you have. And if you didn't bring a Bible, you need one. If you don't have one, you need one. And there's a blue one in the seat back or I guess underneath the seat that you can take with you. Uh, if you have one at home and you're like, I don't need that, but you don't have yours this morning, then grab that because I'm not, this isn't a talkie talk. This is an exposition of that book. So you need to have that book either uh, in hand on a device or the actual book. Okay. I'm going to uh, read our passage and then I'm sort of, I don't know, I don't know how to really acquaint us with it other than just to dive into it. There's no special uh, introduction this morning other than let's just get in it. Well, I should say before I read it, I realize there's some folks that are here for the first time this morning. Hebrews is a sermon written from a he, the pastor of the Hebrew church to his church. We don't know where he was at the time, but we believe from taking clues within the book that this church was likely in Rome. And it was being the Hebrew church, it was a group of what we would call now Messianic Jews. Folks who had been converted to Christianity, who, had a, who were immersed in a background of Judaism. Now the background behind this book is that they are considering bailing on Christianity because it's hard. Being a Christian in the Roman Empire was not an easy thing. But being a Jewish Christian in the Roman Empire took what was already hard and exponentially increase that. And in fact, the most, the most persecution that they faced, they faced at the hands of Jews, not the Roman Empire. Now get that. So this letter is written to a bunch of people that are considering going back to the easy alternative to Christianity, falling back to what their grandparents studied, what their grandparents believed, something easy and what we might even call respectable because Christianity was hard. We're in the final chapter of this book, of this sermon. It's sort of his closing thoughts. We considered last week it's called Paranesis. It's like a, a collection of advice as he closes out this sermon. But this little passage that we're in right now is dealing with false teaching. For some, in some ways, some false teaching has crept in. So I'll read the passage, then we'll, I'll discuss that a moment more, and then I'll share with you the plan for the morning. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11. Where are we? Yeah. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is a passage we considered last week. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, last week, verse 8, was the pivot point for our morning, pivot point for the sermon. And I'll just go ahead and give you a heads up this morning. Verse 8, again, is the pivot point for this sermon. It is what we will hold on to where we will land at the end of our morning. 
Last week I shared that this passage, beginning in verse 7, that goes all the way through 19, in some way has a central theme dealing with some bad or false teaching that has influenced the church to the point where it's distanced the church from their current leadership. That's the theme of this passage, and that's, that explains the bookends that deal with leadership beginning in verse 7 and verse 17. Now, beyond that, we know that much for sure. Beyond that, I will tell you, this is a very difficult passage to sort out. I've been reading ahead in the past months and looking ahead at this passage and saying, man, you know, that's a tough passage. I, I can't wait to get to my commentators so they can help me sort this out. And my favorite commentator, who's probably the most responsible, they all are trustworthy, but my favorite commentator, his last name is Lane, two volumes dealing with Hebrews. And the first thing he says about this passage, it's the most difficult passage in the book of Hebrews. I'm like, man, thanks a lot. I thought we were nearing the finish line. And turns out there's this really big hill just before the finish line. So this morning, uh, mainly this morning, and to some degree next week, we will deal with this really big hill What makes this passage difficult is, one, he uses distinctive phrases, distinct images in this passage that he doesn't explain and develop elsewhere in the letter. It's almost like you're being introduced to a new idea that hasn't been explained somewhere else, so it's very difficult to make sense of. And then on top of that, the second thing is that he ties these distinctive phrases together with connecting words like for, this is true, for this, for this. He ties them together as a central thought, but yet we, have, we don't have the data and the information to really make sense in a, in a perfect sense of the argument that he's making. It comes off as a little bit incoherent. I, I, I trust this for sure. I trust that it made sense then. And we can somehow make some sense of it now. We can make some sense of this now. And I would say this is probably a great example, maybe one of the best examples that I've had a chance to preach in a while, that I would never preach unless I was moving verse by verse. Because it's just hard. But we can do some hard things and really get some good things out of it. And you're going to find there's some good things that will come out of this sermon. I have a plan for a plan of attack for these next few minutes. And the plan of attack is we're going to deal with what we know. We're not going to spend, this isn't a Bible study, this is a sermon, so we need to walk away with some tangibles. So we're going to deal with what we know from this passage, first of all dealing with what we know about the false teaching, and then what is implied about what's true. We're going to deal with things that we know, and then we're going to deal with three ways that we can apply and walk in what we've heard from what we know. Okay? So, the plan of attack. We're going to deal with what we know, first the bad and false teaching, then the true teaching, and then three ways that we can walk in what we've heard. First thing we know about this passage, or first thing we know about this bad and false teaching from the passage, is we know that the Hebrews preacher isn't fond of it. He calls it diverse and strange there in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, I want you to consider for a moment these words that he's used, diverse and strange, in contrast to the verse right above it about Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
But on the other hand, there's this teaching that's crept in and influenced this church that is diverse and strange. Jesus is the same, but this teaching is diverse. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but this teaching is strange. Now, we don't know what teaching we're talking about here. It's one of these passages or one of these, these, these examples that I'm talking about that's not really developed elsewhere in the Bible or elsewhere in the sermon. It's hard to know if he's talking about Judaized Christian teaching or if he's talking about Judaism proper, Judaism in the strictest sense, or if he's talking about Judaized Christianity. He could be talking about Judaized Christianity, for this is a significant influence on the early church. There's a whole book in our Bible that's dedicated to some false teaching that had crept into the church in the book of Galatians. The Galatians had been bewitched by some Judaized Christians who were teaching that grace plus circumcision amounted to salvation. So there's a, definitely a danger of some Judaized Christianity influencing this church. However, whatever we don't know about whether it's Judaized Christianity or whether it's just pure Judaism, we know that it's referring to something Jewish. There's altars, there's those who serve the tent, there's the holy places that are mentioned, the high priest. We don't know exactly what he's talking about, but we can know that it is Jewish to some degree in some way. Now, we also know from this passage that it had something to do with food. Look at verse 9. These diverse and strange teachings, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. We can know from the passage it has something to do with food. Now, let me develop this for a moment. I want to spend a moment just to sort of flesh this out. There's some background that's important to understanding food and worship. See, food and worship went together in Judaism. The Passover is a beautiful example. On the night where they're going to be delivered from Egypt, on the night where the angel of death, or the Lord says, I'm passing over, is passing over the houses of Egypt, where the lentils and the doorposts are to be slathered with blood. On that night, they had a meal. They had a Passover meal. And this meal was associated with deliverance And what would be fitting as they celebrated that, remembering that event every year, would be gratitude and worship in response. Food and worship went together in Judaism. That's one of the earliest examples of the Passover, but it's it's not the first example. It goes way back and goes almost to the very beginning. You'd be surprised how often food shows up with some sort of covenant and some sort of deal. And in some ways, the food and the meal ends up sort of being the way that the deal is sealed. Food is important to worship in the Jewish context. So the notion of food and worship isn't a new one in this conversation. And let me say this, and it's not necessarily a bad one. Referring to food in general is not necessarily a bad thing. Food and worship go together for us as well. If you notice these tables that are sitting back here, if you've been here before, we take the supper every single week. Food and worship go together. So that's not exactly what he's talking about here, food in general. Let me show you something else. I want you to turn to Psalm 104. 
Psalm 104. And you can also, if you want to just kind of have something ready, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Psalm 104 and 1 Corinthians 10. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, became such a part of the Jewish story that they actually developed a blessing from this psalm that they shared over every single meal. And they also had a blessing after the meal that was connected to this psalm. And here are the specific verses, 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now, if you're comparing this passage with the passage we're looking at in Hebrews, then you might think, well, wait a second, there's a disconnect here. It seems to be disagreeing with itself, but there's no disagreement at all because food in and of itself goes with worship. Our food, specific food for us, goes with worship. It's not a new idea, and it's as old as Psalm 104. Let me show you something else in 1 Corinthians 10. And as you're turning there, if you don't have your finger in there already, Let me develop a thought for you. It's not uncommon in our context for us to separate physical things from spiritual things. And it's not uncommon for us to separate sort of this spiritual journey of faith from physical stuff. And when we do that, we're guilty of what's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an early teaching in the church that was a false teaching that said that physical stuff and, and, and spiritual stuff were so separate that, in fact, you could do whatever you wanted to do with your physical body. It didn't matter because faith was a spiritual issue. Know that that is not what our Bibles tell us. What we eat and how we eat it is connected to our spiritual walk. Let me show you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. I'll, I'll begin in verse 14 for the sake of context. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, this is the same cup that he's referring to as the cup that we're going to pass out in a few minutes for our Lord's Supper. We're not talking about a metaphorical cup. We're talking about a real physical connection and physical thing here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The physical and the spiritual are in fact connected. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? See, the Hebrews preacher is not saying that now that we have Jesus, it's all just spiritual and food is irrelevant. Physical stuff is irrelevant. He's talking about something specific, and we'll get there in a minute. But let me show you this. Let me continue. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons by eating food, real physical stuff that's been sacrificed 
to idols. What we eat and our physical, our physical stuff is connected to our spiritual stuff. The food, our food and the heart are still connected. So it seems if we connect those dots, if we let those dots inform where we are in Hebrews, then it appears what was diverse and strange about this teaching was not food in general, but the idea that worshipers should eat and drink former foods, Jewish foods, Jewish regulations, Jewish-type foods as part of their worship, that in the eating of prescribed Jewish foods and practicing the prescribed Jewish regulations, they had experienced the goodness and grace of God. That's a false, a diverse, and strange teaching. And that it would somehow be some sort of means for worship. This diverse and strange teaching, this is the next thing we can know and draw from this passage. Turn back over to Hebrews chapter 13 if you've left there. The next piece of information that we can draw as investigators trying to make sense of what we can really know here. This diverse and strange teaching suggested that grace alone wasn't enough to strengthen the heart. We need something else. What Jesus gave us isn't enough. We can also know from verse 9 that some folks were apparently very devoted to these diverse and strange things and these diverse and strange practices. It's surprising how attractive diverse and strange teachings can be as if Christ and what he gave us isn't enough. We've got to add some things. We can also know from this passage that this is not a novel teaching. This diverse and strange teaching that they've been exposed to is not brand new. It had apparently been around long enough for them to observe the outcome and for him to say it did not benefit those who were devoted to them. We can also know from this passage that they are not to be led away by it. This is the imperative. You know, I shared with you last week, these passages is, this passage is full of imperatives. If you wanted to make sense of what's being said there, then read it this way. It is imperative that you not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. It's interesting there, too, that he didn't say teachers. It's imperative that you not be led away by diverse and strange teachers. He gives teachings themselves, actually, almost kind of a persona, like it almost is a being. He's not calling teachings a being, but the nature of it in being not only attractive, but aggressive is not a new idea. He presents it almost as having a life of its own that wants to get you. Now, the drawbacks of this bad and false teaching from this passage, a few more data points, a few more facts that we can glean from this passage, is that this food and the devotion to these meals, that what we believe to be the Jewish meals and these Jewish regulations, didn't truly strengthen the heart like grace does. It may have kept them pretty busy and occupied. Might be some things you can touch and feel and feel real good about yourself, but it didn't minister to the heart and strengthen the heart like grace does. And their devotion did not benefit them. Their devotion to it did not benefit them. 
I learned to drive in Alexandria, Louisiana, where I grew up. My folks still live there. And um, like our downtown here, downtown in Alexandria, Louisiana is made up of a bunch of one-way streets. And I learned to drive back in the mid-1980s. So I don't know what it was about big Buicks, but older ladies, including my own grandmother, loved to drive big Buicks. I mean, the bigger the Buick, the better. And the little bitty tiny ladies driving these big Buicks, I think they felt protected. I think my grandmother felt protected driving this big two-door. You know, they had the, the door that's open so wide that you need, you, the, the, so where, I mean, it had a second seat, but it was two-door that just opened like so, so big that it was definitely going to bang into the cars next to you. <laughs> these big Buicks, it wasn't, let me get back to the streets, it wasn't uncommon to see a big Buick and a wee little old lady heading down the street in the wrong direction right at you. Here I am learning to drive and trying to figure out how to handle that. One of the things that struck me as I've thought about that is that she was devoted, but she was wrong. She meant well, like my grandmother, sweet as can be, but she was wrong. It's not an uncommon thing today in an age of tolerance to equate devotion and sincerity with truth. And those things don't necessarily go together. You can be devoted, barreling down the wrong, wrong way in that big old Buick and be just plain wrong. And these people were devoted. And they were sincere but they found no benefit from these meals. And the last thing as far as benefits go and these false teaching or the lack of benefits, we know from this passage from verse 10 that they have no right to eat from our altar. No matter how sincere, no matter how devoted, no matter how Thoroughly, they practiced these regulations and rituals. They have no right to eat from our altar. Now, there's some things that we can know about the truth. Now that we've exposed the things we can know about this bad and false teaching, there's some things from this passage that we can glean to make sense of what is true. First of all, in verse 8, our pivot point, last week and this week, Jesus Christ is central to what is really true. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This passage, this verse 8, is something that we've grabbed onto last week. It's something that we should grab onto this week. It was believed to be a condensed version of what their former leaders taught them. Almost like if they had a catechism, hey, let's, let's put together a catechism of some central things that we want to hold on to, that we want our children to teach, or we want to teach our children, we want them to learn. Almost like a catechism question. What did your former leaders teach you? Oh, mom and dad, my former, our former leaders taught us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One thing we can know about the truth is that Jesus is going to be, must be, central to it. And leaders, if they're worth remembering, their message is going to have Jesus at the center of it. We can also know about the truth is that grace is the nourishment, not food regulations. Grace is the nourishment, and God's grace is not experienced through the former Jewish rituals and meals. 
but by faith in Christ, enjoying what he gave us. That's got to be enough. Enjoying what he gave us. We're going to consider that later this morning. We can also know from this passage the things that are true or what's we can know about the truth that the Hebrews church had a right to eat from the true altar, the new and better and final altar, unlike those who were practicing and holding on to these Jewish meals. We can also know that the Hebrew sacrifice, the one that they eat of, the one that we eat of, isn't in an ash heap sitting outside the camp, but actually passed via outside the camp and is now risen and reigning and ruling and living. We can know that about the truth. We can also know that there's some blessings of the truth that come from this passage. The blessings of what their former leaders taught them, the blessings is that grace truly strengthens the heart, unlike unlike diverse and strange teaching, unlike food requirements. Food requirements don't fit the bill for true nourishment and true strengthening of the heart. Jesus does. Turn to John chapter 6. I'm delighted to have the chance to read this passage. I've, over the last 12 years, in addition to preaching through John chapter 6, it's been a, a touch point for us. We've gone back to this passage a number of times over the years. And just to show you that our book and our word is living and active and it's continuing to speak, I go back to John chapter 6, having saturated my preaching, my life with it, and reading it for the first time this week Jewishly. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. We're going to read it Jewishly as if we're being informed by Hebrews 13. We're not going to read the entire thing. I just want to read a couple of excerpts, a little background. Jesus has fed the multitudes. He's preached and fed the 5,000, if you're reading your heading there at the beginning of chapter 6. Then he walks on the water, and then he shows up to the other side, and this crowd that he fed the day before comes for more food, and he tells them a few things. First of all, in chapter 6, verse 27, remember, we're going to read it Jewishly. He says, do not work for the food that perishes. Let's import that into Hebrews 13. Do not do all those rituals. Do not adhere to all those rituals that were true for a long time, but that aren't where you go now. Don't work for those foods, but for the food that endures to eternal life. There's a different table and a different meal, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Look at verse 51. Let's read it Jewishly. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. All that stuff that you've been eating for 1,500 years since the Passover... That's not living bread. You can eat all of that you want, but it's going to perish and you're going to perish. I, though, am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'll look a few verses later, beginning in verse 50-something, 55. For my flesh is true food. That was shadow. 
Now remember, he's preaching to a bunch of Jews. He's fed a bunch of Jews. They would be familiar with the food sacrifices and the food connections. Food was a big part of Jewish worship. The priests ate of most of the sacrifices. The only meal that they didn't, the only sacrifice that they did not eat of was the atonement sacrifice, which is connected to this passage. Food and worship went together. You think they're not carrying that to this hillside as he's feeding the multitudes? You think they're not carrying that into this conversation that he's having with them about true food and true drink? I'm carrying it now here for the first time after 12 years of preaching it. Reading it Jewishly makes all the difference. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. That was shadow pointing to me. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me feeds present tense. He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He is true food. He is true drink, only eaten and drunk by faith. What they learned from their leaders is what their leaders learned from Jesus. There may have been some of those first-generation Hebrews sitting on this hillside, being fed as part of the multitude by him, having made their way around the Sea of Galilee, hearing him preach this next message on I'm true food. That may have been the former leaders that they were encouraged to remember and listen to because they apparently taught that he is the new and better bread. You don't need that old bread anymore. He is the new and better drink. You don't need that old drink anymore. His blood is the new and better drink. He is the new and better meal. That old altar has nothing for you anymore, Jews. That's the point of the passage. I found a quote. It's a pretty cool quote. It's an old guy named Ignatius. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch toward the end of the first century. He lived on into the second century, and he was martyred in 108 in the Colosseum. I believe he was ripped apart by lions. He was bishop of the church in Antioch and a student of the Apostle John. Here's what he said about this passage. Man, if you want to get close to the source, this is pretty close time-wise. He said, gather together, all of you. This is a letter to the church in Magnesia, the Magnesians. It's pretty funny. I didn't even know there were Magnesians. From what I understand, they were highly flammable. (laughs) Here's this letter to the Magnesians. Gather together, all of you, to the one temple of God, as it were, to the one altar, to one Jesus Christ. Singular, not diverse and strange. Gather to the one Jesus Christ. Do not be led away through strange teachings and outmoded fables, which are not useful. If we still go on observing Judaism, we acknowledge that we never received grace. Man, what a beautiful commentary by an old ancient martyr. Now, three things that I believe that we can do with this passage. Three things that are appropriate responses to this passage. First, 
we can know that bad and false teaching happens. Turn to Acts chapter 20. I only have, let's see, I have two more references for you to turn to. Maybe this may be the last one. We'll see. Acts chapter 20. We're parachuting into this passage, so let me give you a little bit of context. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders in sort of his farewell discourse with them. He spent years with them planting the church. And he's encouraging them with some final thoughts before he knows he's never going to see them again. And here's what he says to them. Church in Ephesus, first generation church. First century A.D. Okay, let all those things just kind of hit you for a minute. He says to these elders, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Okay, that sounds scary. Like if, if it just stopped right there and it was a period and you didn't have the rest of the Bible, then you might be like, oh, wolves coming in, they're going to rip you apart. Is he talking metaphor? Is he talking literal? Like literal wolves coming in and ripping apart? Now let's see who he's talking about if the passage is, as the passage continues. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the wolves was metaphor. For people from among you who will take what Paul said, if we want to go back to what your leaders said, what they heard from the Lord, and they'll twist it. Let's add some stuff to what Jesus said because that's not really enough. And he says, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's a matter of when it's going to happen. First century A.D. First generation church. And there's already a threat and a danger and a promise here that there will be false teaching, taking what Jesus said and twisting it, adding to it. And he says, therefore, be alert. Man, false teaching. Listen, listen to this passage from Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Paul's written this letter to a pastor in Crete. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Who do you think he's talking about there? He's talking about Jewish Christians. People taking Jesus and taking more and twisting what Jesus said and adding to it. They are deceivers, he says. They're empty talkers. They must be silenced, is what he says since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. There are many, many, many passages in our New Testaments that are dealing with false teaching. A whole letter, as I mentioned earlier in the book of Galatians. Many, many passages. And this is first-generation Christianity we're talking about. Already first-generation Christianity. How foolish would we be if we accepted, now 2,000 years later, that all Christian teaching and preaching is sound? 
How foolish would we be if we considered that anybody that mentioned the name of Jesus, uh, we're going to be charitable, <laughs> and we're not reading the rest of our Bibles. We're not taking into account passages like this, not taking into account that they could potentially be deceivers and empty talkers taking what Jesus said and adding to it and taking what Jesus gave us and saying, that's not enough. We need some more stuff. We need some more activities. Or we don't even need those. That's another way that deception can take place. How foolish would we be if we accepted that all Christian speaking, teaching, preaching, and I'm going to add songwriting. Some of you can potentially get your theology from Christian, contemporary Christian music. And I'm not going to say that all contemporary Christian musicians are um, biblically illiterate. But I'm going to say based on the stuff that I listen to, I don't listen to Christian music anymore. On, on my radio, and I'm not just encouraging, oh, listen to it. But some of the stuff I'm listening to, and me, what are, did you read your Bible? You should, should tour a little bit less and sit under the teaching and preaching of the word a little bit more. Then go write your song. Gracious sakes alive. I'm not picking on Christian music, but it's something that's right in front of us. Man, there's some good Christian music you can listen to, some old hymns, old songs. There's some contemporary ones, too that are sound, but don't build your theology off stuff like that. Just because somebody mentions the name Jesus doesn't mean that it's sound. They can be completely devoted, driving their Buick right at you. But they could be completely wrong. They could be adding something to what Jesus gave us, or they could be taking away something from what Jesus gave us. Man, it's not being charitable to accept it all hook, line, and sinker. It's being foolish. It's being foolish. This should not make us suspicious of everything. It should make us, as Paul encouraged the courage Titus, it should make them be alert. It should make us alert. It should make us careful. We should have both eyes open knowing that diverse and strange teaching happens. I was sitting in the den and I was telling Christy about that and Daniel overheard me and I said, diverse and strange teaching happens. I said, that would make a good bumper sticker. And Daniel said, huh, that reminds me of the, the uh, Forrest Gump movie. You have to go back to that movie to know what I'm talking about. It's a shorter version, but it means the same thing. Diverse and strange teaching happens. You got to first know that. The second thing, we should scrutinize what we hear. We should scrutinize what we hear. We should know what to listen to and listen for and what to run from. First of all, what to listen to. I want to encourage you to listen for exposition that exposes God's word and explains God's word with God's word. Man, it keeps you honest. I want to encourage you to listen for that. The Hebrew sermon is a beautiful example of that. If you think that might be a new idea or just kind of maybe a way to go about preaching, I encourage you to just flip through the book of Hebrews. I bet your Bible does the same thing mine does. It offsets... Old Testament scripture in the book of Hebrews. As you, I'm not talking about read anything. I'm just talking flip through the pages and look at what's indented. Like set off 
inside the, the text as having narrower margins. That's the Hebrews preacher referring to Scripture. <laughs> he develops his, his thought with Old Testament narratives. And then he makes his point with Old Testament references. That's all the Scripture he's got. He's preaching with Scripture, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. I want to ask you this question. Is your ear attuned to teaching and preaching that does this? It should be. It needs to be. Scrutinize what you hear. Your teaching and preaching that you're listening to should follow sound steps. First of all, what did it mean then? I'm so predictable in my preaching, and I want to be predictable in this area. What did it mean then? The first part of nearly every sermon is going to be spent trying to figure out, well, what did it mean then? Because <laughs> if I jump to what it means now without trying to figure out what it means then, then I can make whatever I want of this. We've got to figure out first what it meant then. Then and only then do we deal with what it means now. And then and only then do we apply it. Man, there's a sound course and a sound plan to good study teaching and preaching and I encourage you to scrutinize what you hear. Visitors, if this is your first and last Sunday here, wherever you land, I'm okay, seriously there are other churches in town that preach expositorily that preach through following these sound steps I encourage you man look for that, expect that demand that Man, we don't need pizzazz. We don't need frills. We don't. I save my pizzazz for other places. <laughs> Not my preaching. You got to know what to listen for, and you got to know what to run from. You got to know what to run from. It was funny. I was laughing about the title of the sermon. I don't know what it has in your bulletins, but in my notes I have Enduring Bad and False Teaching. It's not really a good title because the encouragement there is don't endure it. Don't endure it. Hold the preacher, teacher, whoever it is, accountable. And if they're unrepentant, unresponsive, then don't sit under it. Run from it. Like Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. Run from it because it's bad news. Know what to run from. Here's a good place to start, just from our passage. Run from anyone promising grace and strength of heart through anything other than what Jesus gave us. Man, that's, that's good right there. <laughs> I'm going to say that again. That's just so good. I'm going to make sure you get that. Run from anything and anyone promising grace and strength of heart through anything other than what Jesus gave us. And here's what Jesus gave us. If you want to summarize it, here are four things. He gave us the supper. He gave us a meal that we can eat in faith. Remember, it's not all food is bad. <laughs> food still goes with worship. You've got to be sure it's the right food. He gave us the supper. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, present tense, we're still doing it week by week. He gave us the supper, man, run to it. Don't add anything to it. There's no hocus pocus. There's nothing special about the bread and the cup. 
We enjoy it by faith, but we enjoy what he gave us. He gave us a little simple old meal and said, do this in remembrance of me. Don't make too much of it, but don't make too little of it. That's just as guilty, just as wrong. He gave us baptism. He said, go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. He gave us baptism. He gave us the preaching of the word. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And he gave us the church. He gave us each other. That's what I'm talking about. If you hear somebody that's trying to teach something about Christ, yet they have such a low view of the church that they're not neck deep in one themselves, then please be suspicious. Because he gave us the church. And it's a treasure. He prayed for the church in John chapter 17. Listen what he prays. I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. And he prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you've sent me. He's praying for the church here. He gave us the church. Man, run from anyone promising grace and strength of heart through anything other than, or you could say anything less than, what Jesus gave us. The supper, baptism, the preaching of the word, and each other in the church. Man, that's some good stuff right there. That's clarifying. Mm, mm. Things get foggy sometimes, you know. When you have one of those crystal clear sort of things, man, let, just mm, sitting, mm, that's, that's clear. Let's enjoy that together just for a moment. He gave us some good stuff, and we declare by faith, it's enough. I don't need anything else, but I need all of that. The last thing, we can hold on to verse 8. This week is ending the same way it did last week. Hold on to verse 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His teaching, teaching about him, sound teaching, is not diverse. No pizzazz. No frills. It's just singular. It's just about Jesus. It's what their leaders taught. And it's what the Hebrews church should listen for, and it's what we should listen for. Jesus-centric, no-frills preaching and teaching. Teaching and preaching that teaches us and leads us to the reality that Jesus is the good news. That's Jesus-centric preaching. That Jesus himself is the treasure. That Jesus himself is the carrot Preaching that just presents Jesus as sort of this heavenly bellboy that's going to help you get what you really want is not Jesus-centric. It's taken away from what he's given us. Man, proper preaching, proper teaching, proper study in home, in life group, in corporate gatherings takes us to the reality, if it's proper, that Jesus is the good news now, let me say this. I, we bring all kinds of problems to this corporate gathering. 
all kind of issues. Some of you may be neck deep in one or you're about to be or you're recovering from one. And I want you to hear this. He may help you in a troubled marriage. He may. He may be, he might even rescue it. But he may not. He may not. He may cure your cancer. But he may not. He may have a plan for you that is special, that is like the snowflake. He also may have a plan for you to be like Ignatius, lion food. He may have a plan for you that's like our Egyptian Coptic brothers, for your head to be separated from your body. He may have a plan for you to have a great job and make really good money. He could. But he may have a plan for you to live in poverty. Dave Ramsey can't even help you. Here's the reality, and it's different for every person. You may have to lose everything in order to find it all in him. But whatever he does, however he does it, by all means. Some of you that have come to know the Lord through losing everything. Some of you that have been brought to a place of useful faithfulness through losing some things that were very, very dear. And this is a good Jesus that allows you to go through that so that you will see him as the treasure and not the rescue. Man, however it happens for us, what we all need to learn, what worshipers need to learn is that he is the treasure. He's the treasure. However things turn out for us in this world, in this life, and in this body, and in this marriage, and in this job, he is not diverse and strange. He is the same, and he is the treasure. Knowing him and worshiping him is what we truly need. It's what we offer because it's the truth. Let me pray. God, I'm so, so thankful. A passage that is so completely discombobulating could be so wonderful to take us to the centrality of Christ as the carrot. We enjoy him by faith this morning. We enjoy what you've given us in him, salvation, but we enjoy what he's given us, baptism, supper, preaching, teaching, and each other. God, we count that enough. We call that enough. And in areas where we may be looking for something more, for pizzazz, or something less as irrelevant and unnecessary, I pray that you would bring us to a place of conviction or satisfaction. Conviction if we're undervaluing something. 
satisfaction if we're looking for something else. Satisfaction just with what he's given us. God, I pray we will be the simple people that are like these former leaders they would call to remember. We will be true to a central message of Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we distribute the elements, I want to encourage you in this or guide you in this. If you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, please take and eat and drink. If for some reason you're crossways with a brother or you're living in unrepentant sin, then you may not this morning. You need to know, though, that forgiveness is right there available for you if you ask for it and you aim to repent. And then you can take and drink. But if you're not trusting Christ, if you're just here, just interested and just kind of, kind of checking this Jesus thing out, wait on this supper. This supper is for those who trust him and are trusting in him. I'll share a few more thoughts once our elements are distributed. Let's pass those out. Our altar, in contrast to the other altar with sacrifices that are temporary and discarded and don't perfect the mind and conscience of the worshiper. Our altar, the cross, and our sacrifice, Jesus Christ, were used and sacrificed once and for all, finally. And it's enough. And our sacrifice, rather than ending up in a heap outside the camp, lives and reigns and rules eternally. And we get to eat from this altar. We have a right by faith to this altar. Together we enjoy what was accomplished finally and completely in Christ's work. On the altar of the cross, suffering outside the camp. Together by faith, saying, this is enough, let's take and eat. together by faith, saying, this is enough, let's take and drink.